Heavenly Father, thank you for what we've sung and we've prayed and considered that you are indeed Lord of all, that you are holy, and that you call us to be holy. You call us to be yours. You have enabled us to be holy. By your Spirit, you make us holy. We pray that as we study this incredible book uh, over the next few mornings, you would give us deep insights into the wonder of the gospel. Lord, please protect us from over-familiarity and thinking we know it, thinking we're just sorted. Help us to see again what it is to know you and the privilege that that is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, it's great having Revolution in with us this morning and every morning. I feel very sorry for you because you've got to listen to me instead of Trevor. Please do bear with me. I don't make as good jokes as Trevor does, and uh, I can't pull faces like Trevor can, but, you know, I'll do my best, and uh, we'll see what we can to keep you all on side. Um, but you know where the door is, and we don't lock the doors during these sessions, but uh, you do have Rico to contend with afterwards for your small group. So just, just weigh up your options. I think that's the key. Um, but it's interesting, I wonder if we were to ask some of the kids from the schools represented in their sixth form common rooms, what people in this country actually thought about God. I'm not talking about those who, you know, even visit church just sort of once or twice a year at Christmas and Easter. I mean, you know, people who have absolutely no experience, no contact with church at all. I'm talking about the average British teenager, because let's face it, the average person in this country does not go anywhere near church. Um, well, in 2005, two uh, American sociologists um, published a groundbreaking book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Now, of course, there are going to be some differences, some things that are more American than European and so on, but uh, uh, the interesting thing is that their research was by no means restricted to Christian homes, but people from all kinds of backgrounds... And um, their conclusions were fascinating. Now, as I say, there are going to be some differences from Brits, but um, on the whole, I think there's a lot of overlap. And they recognized that most people they talked to were not the sort of new atheists at all. Most people, easily the majority, believed in God of some description. They weren't atheists. Um, and they came up, they tried to sort of summarize... Um, I'll put that down, there we are, that's better... Um, try, they tried to summarize the sort of um, how you would sort of describe the sort of residue beliefs that people have. What sort of things, if you can sum it up in a neat phrase. Well, they came up with a very ugly phrase, um, but I put it on the sheet. It's moralistic therapeutic deism. So that's um, your first project um, this week is to remember that little phrase. It's very ugly. Um, and, in fact, you can forget it almost immediately. But I think what lies behind it is very, very interesting. They detected five key features of what people out there believe. They believe that there is a God. So it's not atheism. There is a God. He, she, or it, or they made and ordered the world and keeps a sort of general eye on what's going on in the world. Secondly, they believe that there is uh, an ethical code that generally God wants people to be nice. He wants them to be fair to each other. And that's, after all, what most religions say. It's what the Bible says, you know, do as you will be done by and all this sort of stuff. And that's why they described it as moralistic. It is not amoral. It is highly moral. It might be slightly different from what a lot of Christians believe, but on the whole, it takes morality very seriously, and you want to be nice, you want to be tolerant, you want to be kind. So it's very moral. And then if they were to sum up what sort of the purpose of life is, what God wants in people's lives, well, whether or not God is the precise one who tells you what it is, is a moot point, but the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about myself. That's why it's therapeutic. So basically, it's about doing things that make me better, make me feel better, better about myself, about my experiences, about the world around me. And so basically, um, <coughs> excuse me, as a result, ministry, if the people encounter ministry at all, ministry needs to be therapy. 
in whatever sphere, whatever type. But um, if there is a God, what, what is he doing? How is he involved in the world? Well, well, this is interesting because basically most people don't expect God to do anything in the world. Yeah, he's there. Perhaps he sort of made the world, and we don't really understand that stuff, and we certainly don't think it was seven days or any of that nonsense, but yeah, he sort of made the world, um, but he doesn't really get his hands dead. He doesn't have much to do with the world, um, and he's not particularly involved in my life. That's why they call it deism. Now, in fact, it is a wrong use of the word deism. We don't need to worry about that, but it's the idea that there's a God who doesn't really get his hands dirty. But you know, these people will still pray, and they'll pray to God before exams or to get them out of a hole. So they sort of have this sort of residual idea that God's going to do something, but it's all very vague, and in real terms, they don't really expect him to do anything. And if he does, well, they promise to go to church a bit more. That's the sort of idea. And then what about the future, the long term? Well, basically what happens is that good people, people who've been nice, people who've been happy and fulfilled, they're going to go to heaven. And that pretty much basically means everybody. I wonder if any of that rings any bells with, with you and people you talk to. I think this sort of fits with sort of the general vague atmosphere we breathe, you know, in the media, in, in soap operas or whatever. This is generally the idea. And if people are not nice, then they get what they're coming to. I don't know whether you uh, ever got into the TV series Hustle, you know, about these con artists. We've been watching the whole lot again um, recently. And, um, you know, there's, there's this great sense of honor and code amongst these swindlers. I mean, it's hilarious, and we love them. Um, you know, um, and they only go after bad guys. They only con money out of the bad guys. So that's okay, then. <laughs> and then every now and then, they suddenly realize there was one episode where um, someone got hit on the head and suddenly turned nice. He'd been a nasty guy, and then he got hit on the head, and he turned nice, and so they had to stop the con, because, you know, we can't con nasty, uh, ni ni nice guys. That's the sort of morality around the place. So let's sum up MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. Isn't it lovely? Basically, I can be good enough, and my life is about me, and God is at my beck and call. Basically, that's how you would sum it up. That's what religion's about. That's why you go to church. Church is there to, to help. And, you know, if church is what helps you, great. If it's not what helps you, then you do something else. I know, um, go to Pilates or, or go um, jumping out of airplanes. Whatever, you know, whatever helps you to be who you're meant to be. I think the thing that particularly strikes me about this is that God is there and essentially passive. He doesn't really do anything. He just sort of floats about. Uh, he's a bit like sort of room service in a, in a hotel. You know, um, you just ring the bell and he comes. Oh, those are the points. Here he is. Ring the bell and there he is. And God will be at your beck and call. That's basically what prayer is. Um, but, you know, he'll bring a, a meal to you or he'll mend the loo if there's something wrong with that. But otherwise, he'll leave you alone in your room because it's private. But here's the devastating thing. I think that as Christian believers, we ourselves sink into this very same mindset. Yes, it's fine to see it out there, but I fear a lot of the time this is how we assume God is, that he's there at our beck and call and that most of the time he doesn't, he's not really interested and, um, and we don't expect much from him. Of course, when things go wrong, we're very, very quick to blame him. But most of the time, we trundle along and we expect him to mind his business as we mind ours. And we forget that actually we are his business. And, and I think at the same time, we're very confused when we do ask for things and don't really understand why he doesn't seem to do anything about it. Now, I can say that there have been very many, too many dark days during my times of depression, and, you know, I'm not out of the woods yet. Uh, and there are days when I really just do not see where God is at work. I cannot see how he is involved and, and why things certain, happen, certain things happen, and he doesn't seem to lift a finger and, and so on. And, 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 and so I'm tempted to think, well, I actually don't think God really does get involved. 
I remember C.S. Lewis once described how his biggest fear was not that he would stop believing in God. He was absolutely convinced that God is, is there. Now, his biggest fear that he would stop believing that God is good. And I can really relate to that. When you can't understand what he's up to and why things are going on the way they are, how, how involved really is God? Or is he just sort of out there, a bit like the odd room service when we ring the bell? Well, um, I'm going to try and sort of have interludes through the different talks, play a bit of music and so f- show a few clips and things. Here's, um, here's a song from a chap called Jacob Dylan, who is, in fact, the son of the legend Bob. And um, he sums up precisely this experience, uh, to my mind, of what it's like when you think, actually, God doesn't seem to be doing very much. And it's a, called, a song called God Says Nothing Back. starting premise and the premise of the Apostle Paul is very simple. God does say something back. We can't know everything. We can't know exactly what God is up to in all the details. But one of the things I've been getting my head around in Galatians in the the big picture of the thing is the, the, the fact that God is at work. And these are the things to cling to in the darker days. And I think Paul was on fire as he dictated this letter. I think I sort of imagine him pacing around the room uh, while his poor secretary was trying to get everything down on papyrus as quickly as possible. And we know that he dictated it because at the very end of chapter 6, you find him saying, see what big handwriting I've got. Um, in other words, some poor chap is, is going for it. On, you, know, um, you can almost see the sort of steam rising from the papyrus, which is probably quite dangerous. But anyway... Um, You might think that his introduction in the first two or three verses is quite muted before he blasts away uh, in in a a few verses later. But actually, what we get in these first two verses is simply monumental. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this is one of the key books of the Bible, that if you've not understood Galatians, you can't really claim to have understood the gospel. Now, of course, you can understand the gospel without having grasped Galatians, but it, will be, it won't have its roots deep in God's purposes. Galatians is absolutely fundamental. And that's why it's great to be doing it this week. It seems quite dense and hard to break into, and I, and I understand that. And sometimes Paul's argument can be a bit sort of finickety and detailed and complex. And we'll try and sort of weave a path through it, particularly in the middle chapter. Sometimes you're thinking, well, how did you make that link? Well, we're going to do our best, but the key thing is, through it all, is that God is at work. That is the bottom line. God is at work. He is in the driving seat. And um, these two um, you know, opening verses um, make two points very, very clearly. One is that God was at work by sending Paul. Paul was sent by the God of the gospel. <clears throat> So verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. Is God involved here? Who calls the shots? Well, it's obvious. What makes Paul an apostle, literally a sent out one? Well, there's got to be someone sending for someone to be an apostle. No other people, Paul says, no individuals. And if there had been Uh, an individual who commissioned Paul, if there was one candidate above all others who you might expect to be responsible, it would be Simon the Rock, or Simon Peter, otherwise in this translation known as Cephas, which is just the Aramaic for the rock. Now, Cephas, Peter, is going to feature quite a bit, Uh, and he was the Jesus-appointed head of the church. He was the rock on which God would build the church. In other words, the first leader of the apostles. 
Now, if Peter had appointed Paul in the first place, it would have been easy. That would have been something. It would have been clear. Everybody would have known where Paul was coming from, and he would have carried real weight with the false teachers that were going to encounter in Galatia. But that's not how it happened, which was a problem and an opportunity for Paul. He wasn't appointed by Cephas, but this gives him an opportunity to make a very important point. And this underlines Paul's argument throughout the letter. God is at work. This is the God of the gospel, which is meant by, uh, by that we mean in verse 1, the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is about God being involved, isn't it? If the resurrection is not about God's involvement in the world, I don't know what is. It happened in history. Um, I wonder if you ever came across Kilroy was here. Does anyone remember that? It's, it's a bit of a fad. No, I didn't know, but I discovered that actually it dates back to the Second World War. And, and basically soldiers would, you know, uh, as they, um, American soldiers, as they, they marched through Europe during the liberation and so on, they would, they would sort of mark on buildings and stuff, Kilroy was here, and there it is celebrated in American stamp. But it's saying, look, we were here. We've been here, and we've moved on. And um, you find people wanting to do this sort of thing all the time. I, I was doing a Langham uh, preaching conference in Greece uh, a couple of years ago. We managed to go to Cape Sunion, which is only about 40 minutes drive out of Athens. And there's this amazing temple to Poseidon on the spit out into the sea. And um, it's, it's a pretty well-preserved temple. It's actually stunning. And um, Lord Byron was there. And what's quite fun is that he actually wrote his name on one of the walls, and you can see, there it is, there's his name, He's, he scratched, uh, the, the guide around the place, um, you know, was very helpful, answered lots of questions, but when I said, oh, can you show me where Byron's um, uh, thing is, she just groaned and pointed me to that, but there we are, so, you know, Byron was here, that's what it's saying, well, God has done the same thing in human history, he has marked his place. He has said, I was here through the resurrection. God is involved. This has changed everything. He is active in the world. The rock, the resurrection, sorry, the resurrection is the rock solid event that more than any other proves that MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, has a problem. Because God has got involved and done the most extraordinary thing. God is active, God was here, and God still is, because Christ has risen, and he has plans, and those plans do not necessarily fit with my plans. There's a, there's a clash, there's a conflict, and that changes everything, and for Paul, it affected his whole life, as we'll see. But his involvement doesn't stop there. Um, because God actually isn't just interested in Paul, he's also interested in people all around the world, and the Galatians themselves were saved by the grace gospel of this God. Look at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. This God has a will. He has a purpose. He's not just there for my own well-being to make me feel better about myself and to ensure that I'm nice. He has invaded the world and done the most radically surprising and revolutionary things. But, uh, you know, Paul emphasizes what the, he has in common with these Galatian brothers and sisters. He repeats, you know, same Father, same Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to rescue us. Paul included. He's with these Galatians. But he picks out the other half of the Easter equation. In verses 1 and 2, you have the resurrection. In verse 3 and 4, you have the cross. This is God's will, God's intervention in human history. God is active. Now, that is crucial. Because, as Paul explains, the false teachers have undermined both. You see, the cross 
according to the false teachers, was effectively not enough to rescue us from our sins. That's going to be the thread through the letter, that the cross is not enough. Whereas Paul wants to say, it is absolutely enough. And then the the second thing that the false teachers are going to be wanting to say is that the present evil age has a very serious influence that we got problems with. And Paul wants to say, no, God has done enough to help us fight back, that we are not slaves to the present evil age. We have been rescued because he's given himself for our sins. Do you see? Our sins have been dealt with. The present evil age has been dealt with. And the false teachers undermine both. Now, don't worry if you don't follow that. It'll become clear in the next day or two. But this is what makes Galatians a very, if you can put it like this, binary letter. You know how computer code and computing is all done in ones and zeros. Everything is reduced to ones and zeros. It's, it's on or off. It's in or out. It's, it's black or white. And Galatians is, is very binary like that. And at the back of the booklets, you can see on page 22 a sort of rough diagram that we'll come to at various points. But Galatians definitely has two tracks. Two tracks. The life of faith and the life of works. And there's nothing in between. This is the one and the zero of Galatians. And basically, Paul is saying there's no fence. There is no gospel or there is a gospel. The gospel is the life of faith. No gospel is the life of works. And we'll explore why again as the days go on. There are only two tracks. In Galatians, in the gospel. And so, when the gospel is twisted or turned in some way, it very rapidly ceases to be gospel. It ceases to be good news. It becomes some sort of news, but it's not good. And we'll see why this morning. It's not politically correct, this. But it's what Galatians teaches. Now, I'm going to warn again and again, this is not an invitation for Christians to be binary about everything. It's one of the things that freaks me out about Christians most, is how we become binary about everything and fail to see that sometimes it's about my perspective or it's about issues being more complicated than we can understand um, and we just need to live with complexity. I think very often Christians fail because we don't know how to live with complexity. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't throw it all out and say, everything's so complex we can't say sure things, which is what the world wants us to do. No, this is on or off. And if you're struggling with that, if you don't quite know how that works, well, Paul will help us through that in no uncertain terms. And basically, what we find in chapter 1 is like a reverse image of the opening verses. So, um, verse 6 to 10 picks up straight from the Galatians bit, and then 11 to 24 picks up Paul's mandate. And so, it's what the people who like these things in the trade are called a a chiasm. It's a chi, which is the sort of X in Greek, Um, even though it's not pronounced like an X. But anyway, there we are. So what we're going to do is deserting the gospel of God and then why Paul has mandated the gospel of God. Is everyone with me so far? Is everyone happy? Do you want to stretch your legs? No, because you can't. Okay. Well, let's take the first one. Are they deserting the gospel of God? Now, there are a number of problems with Galatians, and I'm not going to bore you with those, but I'm sort of scratching my head over the last few months trying to sort of get my head around them. Um, But basically, suffice it to say, I think there are very good grounds for suggesting that Galatians is the first book of the New Testament to be written that we have. I think there is a good argument for saying it comes before 1 Corinthians. And um, one of the reasons is because of where Paul visits on his first missionary journey. So if you look at the maps at the back uh, page, uh, whatever that is, 19, it hasn't come out brilliantly, but... Basically, Galatia is a vast province. And the the difficulty is over the Roman imperial period, over sort of several centuries, 
the, the, the boundaries of the Galatia province moved. I mean, you know, it's like the Boundary Commission changing MPs' constituencies. Um, this happened regularly during the Roman Empire as they just changed jurisdictions. So one of the difficulties is knowing where Galatia exactly was, which parts were in and out. But the key thing is, in the bottom, you can just see Lystra, Iconium, and Derby at the south part of Galatia there. Those correspond to the bits where he visits on the map on the first missionary journey. And we know that he went there very early on. That's the first journey. He visited further north later. But it seems most likely that this letter is written to those people in the southern area of Galatia. And that's one reason for making it seem very early. And you can find all about that in Acts chapter 14. I've printed out the, ver the key verses in the book, but you can look at them later. But these three cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, are visited in Acts 14. And all kinds of fun things happen there. Paul and Barnabas preach very boldly. They're in constant danger. Um, and a man gets healed in Lystra. And uh, people think they are Greek gods. You know, people think that uh, Barnabas is Zeus because he doesn't say anything. And um, Paul is Hermes, who's the messenger of the gods. It stands to reason. They got the order slightly wrong. But anyway, they clearly are impressed by him. And you know, fair enough, those are the sort of categories they thought in. You know, they, they don't know about Jesus necessarily. They don't necessarily understand what Judaism is all about, although maybe they had Jewish friends. But these are the sort of categories. There's something special about these people. Okay, it's Zeus and Hermes. Fab. Um, but things go slightly wrong because Paul ends up being stoned and left for dead, which actually in the days before ambulances and A&E is a terrifying situation. I mean... Knowing myself, if I'd been left for dead, having been stoned, and that, what that means is people actually think he's dead. You know, these people probably did it every now and then. And they, they knew what a dead person looked like. Paul looked dead. If it had been someone like me, I would have given up ministry that day, wouldn't you? Well, this will get alluded to in Galatia, in the letter. But the important thing is that people got converted even then. Uh, there was a church in Galatia. Miraculously, there was a church there. And, and within just a matter of months, though, things had gone awry. Some things had gone wrong. But that's life, isn't it? So often what appears solid begins to crumble. And notice how Paul puts it in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Yes, this desertion feels personal. But here's the point. It's not personal to Paul. It's personal to Christ. He was the one who called them. He was the one who called them to live <coughs> in grace. Because the gospel is a gospel of grace. And if it's not grace, it's not gospel. <coughs> if it's not grace, it's not good news. A different gospel, then, you see, is no gospel. If it's not built on gospel, it, on grace, it cannot, by definition, be good. And that's a good acid test. Is this message good news? Let me illustrate. Um, one of the features of the Allied strategy in the Second World War was to support um, the French resistance in all kinds of ways. In particular, SOE, the Special Operations Executive, they had its um, HQ on Baker Street, just around the corner from Spratt. And there's a green plaque there. Um, I think, is it a Smith's or one of those? Anyway, along Baker Street. Um, and I often walk past that and just think of all the extraordinary things that were plotted in that, that building. Um, but, you know, they would um, organize parachute drops of tons of explosives, you know, to help sabotage railways or whatever. And I, but I particularly love is the, was the use of uh, the BBC, Radio Londres, uh, as a way of getting the messages out to the resistance. And you know, before the news, they would introduce um, seemingly ra random messages with the words, before we begin, please listen to some personal messages. Um, and everybody knew they were codes. Um, but only the intended recipient would know what the codes meant. I mean, here are some of my favorites. 
So, you know, personal messages just before the news on Radio Londres. Um, Andromache is scented with lavender. Aha. Uh -huh. Jean has a very long mustache. And this is my favorite. A hen pecks on a wall of hard bread. And off they would go on their mission. They would know what that meant. Easy. But these messages did something else, even for those who didn't understand what the specific code meant. It said, we're on your side, we're active, we're doing things. So you might be sort of, you know, um, illegally listening to um, the BBC under your bedclothes late at night, and you'd be hearing these messages, and you'd be thinking of all the, 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 the folks out there in the resistance doing different things, responding to these messages, you know, getting airdrops, helping an airman, doing this, that, and the other, and you'd be thinking, well, I don't know what's going on, but somebody does, and that's encouraging. Help is at hand. Someone's going to help us. We're going to be rescued. This is good news. Now, imagine at some point, and at various points during the Second World War, things could have changed so very easily, but imagine the wind changed, and suddenly the Allies felt they could no longer help the resistance. The message would now something be like, uh, be like something, you know, um, I'm afraid you're on your own now. There's nothing more we can do. That would be very bad news. Nothing could soften the pill. It, it doesn't matter if a BBC announcer says it or if Winston Churchill or Eisenhower or de Gaulle says it. It doesn't matter who says it. The fact is, it's bad news. You're on your own. Now, I think that's something of what's going on here in Galatians. The false teachers have come and preached a different message, a perverted message, a different gospel in verse 7. And Paul says, it doesn't matter who tells you this. It doesn't matter who the messenger is. In verses 8 and 9, it can even be angels saying it. Even if angels tell you this, it's still bad news is effectively saying, you're on your own. The rescue is off. And so they are under God's curse, or in Paul's original words, they are anathema, to be cut off. They are under a curse. Now, we'll come back in the next day or two as to why they're under a curse. But basically, the upshot is, there is no one to take the curse off them. You see, the cross removes the curse. So if they remove the cross, they still have the curse. The gospel is about a rescue. That's what it is. That's what makes it good. That is the heart of grace. And if a message is twisted to make it stop being a rescue, then it ceases to be good news. Now, hang on a minute. This is a bit extreme, isn't it? This is a bit exaggerated. Well, not if the false teacher's message is something like this. God's not going to rescue you. You're on your own. You've got to do what you can to earn your own salvation. You're on your own now. In other words, rescue yourself. It would be like Churchill coming onto the radio and say, we cannot support the resistance anymore. You're on your own now. That's not great, is it? Now, we're going to find out more about the contents of the false teachers uh, as we go on, but there are three key ideas to introduce at this stage because I'm going to refer to them in the next um, couple of days. The first is that they're described as effectively legalists, now, these are people who imagine that we can earn our salvation by obeying God's rules, by obeying the law. Now, in the book of Acts, in Acts 15, a very important event happened. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. And that happened probably just after Galatians was written. All right? So if you're interested in these sort of things, that probably means Galatians is dated around 4950 AD, around then. And the Council of Jerusalem happens after Paul writes Galatians. And in Acts 15, we're told that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers this, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp debate with them. All right? You cannot be saved without keeping the law, in this case, by getting circumcised. Now, I just wonder whether if Paul was writing this letter at the very time of this dispute, it's highly possible that when those people come down to Antioch in Acts 15, Paul is actually at work on this letter. Who knows? And that's what triggered the Jerusalem Council, which would sort out, theoretically, this once and for all. Legalism is not good news. It's saying you're on your own. An added dimension to this is is a bit more uncomfortable, and and this is the idea of racialism. It's not racism, it's racialism. And the assumption here is that Jewish culture uh, is superior, and therefore the heritage of ethnic elitism must be maintained because God chose the Jews. And so we need to join in with them. We need to basically adopt their culture because that is divinely revealed. It is superior. So why on earth should we carry on these horrible Gentile pagan practices and lifestyles and cultures and clothes? We should all become Jewish because God revealed it. Now, this is tricky because it is the case, and we're going to have to work this one out, but it is the case God revealed the law. It was his idea. It came from God. He's an intervening God. He's a revealing God. He revealed the law. And so Paul's got to walk this tightrope. How does he say that God, yes, revealed this law, but by saying, but then saying, you don't have to obey the law to be saved? He's got a tightrope to walk. But, um, you know, it's clear in the law that the Jewish people are to live differently from the Gentiles. So, you know, you are not to live like the peoples in the land that you're about to inhabit. You are to come out from among them. You're not to adopt these pagan practices. You are to be separate. You are to be holy. That's what holy means. Holiness is being set apart. In other words, at its very basis, not like the Gentiles. So you can see why the racialists have a good point. And Paul's got to deal with that one. So, this is a problem, and this is not good news. I guess for the majority of people living in ancient Turkey and the whole of the Roman Empire, that wasn't exactly good news because most of them weren't Jewish. Quite a lot of things were going to have to change. The question is, what? Yes, the gospel does bring a cost, but does it mean that you lose your cultural identity? Racialism is not good news. And then there's the third element, the nomists. This is the oddest and perhaps most subtle of the three. It's a bit tricky to get your head around this one. It comes from the Greek word for law, nomos. And the word law comes a great deal of times in the letter, as you would expect. And you know, I've done that little wordle near the back. You can see um, the most um, common words in the letter. Now, nomism is not necessarily the same as legalism. Um, and this is a little sort of tricky thing. Um, they, they agree that legal obedience doesn't earn a place in heaven. They would agree with that. So they would differ from the legalists. But what they would say is that it is necessary to obey the law to stay within the covenant and receive its blessing. The big fear you see they have is that if you preach grace, they are worried people are going to start living completely debauched lives. They're going to think, you know, oh, 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 you mean so so I'm forgiven? Oh, I can do whatever I like now, because why? God will forgive me. That's his job. That's what God does, isn't it? He forgives. So it doesn't matter how I live, because he'll forgive me anyway. The gnomists are terrified of license. They're terrified people are just going to sort of throw caution to wind and live more riotously than the pagans. And you can understand it, can't you? But um, you see, yes, God is concerned how we live, but God saves by grace. You see, these guys effectively think, yeah, God saves by grace, but you stay in grace by keeping the law. That's nomism. But do you see, you've suddenly added to grace. Not the same as legalism, which is, you know, works all the way. These guys at least acknowledge grace. You've just got to add to it. My hunch, and we'll see this in a couple of days, my hunch is that most people at All Souls 
tend towards gnomism. I think that's what most of us are. If that freaks you out because you don't know what gnomism is, listen in. Because we should be a bit freaked, to be honest. It destroys assurance. And I can assure you, it is not good news. It is not the gospel. None of these is the gospel. Now, what's difficult is that it's a bit like trying to sort of pin down mercury. You know, sort of when mercury slithers around and you try to sort of pin it down. Trying to pinpoint exactly what these false teachers are doing and saying is difficult. And I suspect that Paul has different groups in his mind. Maybe he's got the people in Acts 15 in his mind, as well as what he's heard is going on in Galatia. And, and so he's talking about the general issue. So sometimes he's arguing specifically with legalists, sometimes with gnomists, sometimes with a combination and so on. It doesn't really matter too much, as long as we grasp these three basic problems. And I hope you've begun to see why each of these is very bad news. Because it's basically saying, in different ways, you're on your own now. And that's not good news. You see, Paul, Paul doesn't care what people think of him, per se. It's just that he's no respecter of people's dignity. If they're in leadership, he'll say, no, what matters is not their job, but their message. And they need to recognize this, so I'm going to scoot through the last bit very quickly. Because Paul, you see, his ministry is mandated by the God of the gospel. Now, you see, Paul's not boasting in, in 11 to 20, 24. He's, he's not saying, hey, look at me. Uh, he's made it very clear that I have very little to be proud about. I would not be here without grace. After all, I persecuted the church. Grace uses even persecutors and killers. I mean, isn't it? Have you stopped to think about it? That, that one of the most violent, brutal, vicious, hostile Christ, uh, people in the ancient world ended up being one of the greatest minds in the history of the Christian church. I mean, there is no question that Paul has probably one of the greatest minds, if not the greatest mind, in the history of the, of the Christian church in 2,000 years. And yet there was a time when he was a bloodthirsty killer. In the name of God. He knew that. He's not boasting about himself. He is just absolutely blown away by grace. And so anyone who undermines that, who threatens that, who changes it, it just breaks his heart. Paul is no sort of lone ranger or tyrant or cult leader. He's not interested in his own authority. He's just terrified that people won't hear grace, in which case they won't hear the gospel in which case they won't be saved like he was, even him. So he starts with his own, uh, uh, own uh, testimony, and the point couldn't be clearer. It begins with a divine revelation. He says in verse 11, I want you to know the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I received it from Jesus Christ, and we know when that happened. And there's something counterintuitive about the gospel, isn't it? It, it simply couldn't have been invented. Grace... Uh, Philip Yancey's book, um, What's So Amazing About Grace, has a, has a brilliant story of um, C.S. Lewis. And um, <clears throat> during a, a conference in Britain on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what was unique to Christianity, if anything. And they began eliminating various possibilities. And, um, you know, was it incarnation? No, other religions have incarnation. Uh, you know, gods in human form. Was it resurrection? No, other religions believe some form of resurrection from the dead and so on. And the debate went on for some time and then C.S. Lewis walked into the room and said, you know, what's all this rumpus about? And uh, he heard his colleagues and they replied, they were discussing this and Paul responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, without strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. 
the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these, in its own way, offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Now, I know this is dangerous language because you're thinking, does this mean that I can live however I want? Isn't that a condition? Well, we'll find out. Grace lies at the heart of this. And Paul is saying, it was revealed. It was revealed to me. I can date when it was revealed to me. I was on a journey to kill Christians. I got it from God direct. And the interesting thing is, there's no mystery here. There's no funny business. And we know what happened and when and why it was necessary. Secondly, a divine invasion. Look what this young Paul got up to. Only in his 20s or 30s, how intensely I persecuted the church, trying to destroy it. It wasn't just sort of angst or, you know, aggression. It was, it was determination. It, he was on a mission from God against the church. So he thought. <clears throat> and then he was clearly racialist himself, wasn't he? He was zealous for the Jewish traditions because they were superior. They were revealed by God. They were the most important thing. And he was prepared to kill. That sort of mentality would find a welcome home in the Taliban, wouldn't it? Humanly speaking, you see, there was no way he was going to move from this. No wonder the believers of Judea were a little skeptical to begin with of his conversion. Paul meets Jesus face to face, and his job is to preach to the Gentiles. Now, this is the crucial thing. We find that in Acts three times. We have Paul's testimony three times in Acts. It's the only thing that gets repeated so much. And at the heart of each time, Paul is commissioned to preach to the Gentiles. Now, think about this. It is part of Paul's born-again DNA to preach to the Gentiles. When he's born again, this is part of his DNA. So Paul knows from the very first minutes of his Christian life that his job is to go out into the pagan world and preach Christ. That meant from the minute he was converted, his planet-sized brain was clicking and whirring and thinking about the problem of reaching Gentiles. From the word go. So don't you think he is going to think long and hard about how we're going to deal with things like circumcision and the law and grace and culture and all this sort of stuff. From the minute he's converted, that's at the top of his agenda. Because Jesus told him this is what he was going to have to do. And he had been gifted with the sort of mind that was capable of doing that creative thinking. And we see that in his letters. The key question, I think, for him, having to work out over these, well, it's 20-odd years, depending on quite how you time it, is what do we do with the law? He's going to give decades of thought to what do we do with the law. So we've got to take that seriously. And that is why when we see him writing about it, sometimes it's a bit shorthand, sometimes it's sort of, um, you know, a, a bit bullet pointy, but that's because, you know, he said it so many times and thought about it so many times, I guess. And, and sometimes it's quite hard to sort of catch up with him, isn't it? But it's at the heart of who he is as a new believer. But we're rushing things a little. Just after his conversion, Paul leaves immediately, and that's not surprising. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. Of course he doesn't. He's now a wanted man. He's a, he's a turncoat. He's a traitor. He's a, perhaps a bit like Edward Snowden seeking um, asylum in Russia because of his um, revelation of CIA secrets. He's gone to the other side. So Paul goes to Arabia, then to Damascus, where he'd been traveling. That's interesting, isn't it? He goes to the place where he was going to kill people. But he wasn't going to persecute. He was going to propagate, to grow the church. But to underline that this is all, all God's initiative, Paul makes it clear that the gospel was from God. Look at verse 16. My immediate response 
was not to consult any human being. Why? Because God has made this clear. Paul was a trophy of God's intervening grace who used the time to help over the next 20 odd years to clarify the gospel and to search and think about its impact on the Gentile world. And we have the fruit of that thought in letters like Galatians and Romans and Philippians and various other places. And that is a far cry from MTD, isn't it? That is a far cry from moralistic, therapeutic deism. In other words, that God wants me to be nice, he wants me to be happy, and it'll all be all right in the end, and he'll do what I want. He didn't let Paul do what he wanted on the Damascus Road, did he? And we're rather pleased about that. Grace makes the difference. God is an intervening God. Without grace, that would be terrifying, isn't it? Wouldn't it? An intervening God who doesn't bring grace, that would be scary. That would have us knocking our knees, wouldn't it? But what an amazing truth. What an amazing combination, the reality of a grace God and an intervening God at work. Gordon MacDonald, as I finish, put it like this. He said this, the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You do not need to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. We can because God has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your goodness and mercy, that you are involved, that you intervene, that you are at work, and that you bring grace. Without that, we would be lost. We would have no one to rescue us. We pray that you might help us to walk in grace, because you have placed us on that path by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.